you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John, the 11th chapter, verses 17 through 27. And before we get started, I, I always like to share with you guys a little bit of what I've discovered during the week. And, you know, as Easter comes upon us, we, we remember that the events of, Eas of Easter took place in Israel. And there's a lot of things happening in Israel right now. I'm, I'm very happy to see that there's an attempt at a peace treaty uh, that they're trying to do or a ceasefire. And uh, I don't know if it's going to happen, but many of you know that Easter is going to happen on the 31st of March. And we're coming into that Easter season. And so uh, what I'm going to talk about today uh, is happening roughly a month before the crucifixion. Uh, many of you know I'm a pastor, uh, but I'm also a hospice chaplain. And uh, when it comes to doing funerals, uh, if you're a hospice chaplain, you usually put in about one every two weeks. So uh, I've been doing hospice chaplaincy for over 10 years. And so as you, as you do these uh, services as a pastor, you can always tell a little bit about what the family thought of the person that they're burying, okay? And uh, the sad reality is that many times families believe that they're never going to see their loved one again. They believe that you're, you're done, you, you've died, you've passed on, you'll never be seen again. And uh, it's always incumbent upon me to comfort them as best I can uh, based on what I have to work with. Uh, I like what one of my uh, ministers said in uh, seminary when we were getting ready to take a test. He said, Lord bless them in accordance with their preparation. And I think about that as well when it comes to our whole lives. Our whole lives is a preparation for that day that we take our last breath. Our whole life is a preparation for what our children and our loved ones are going to think of us when that day comes that we close our eyes for the last time. And so in our passage today, uh, we see some of that. Uh, what I would ask you is to pray for Israel. Uh, as what they're going through right now uh, and uh, pray for them as uh, they're trying to get their lives back to normal. It's not been normal for Israel since the day of the massacre. Many of you know that. And so we are called upon to pray for our Jewish brethren and there are quite a lot of Christians over there. So keep them in prayer. They need it more than ever. Let us read our passage, John the 11th chapter. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Let us pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, 
as this season is upon us, this season of Easter, Lord, help us to always be that shining light. We always should be. Lord, it's, it's kind of sad sometimes that we have to be reminded that we are the light of the world. But help us, Lord, give us extra energy and extra strength that in this season of Easter, that we might be the one that shows someone else what eternal life is all about. In your name we pray, amen. We are, on, we are at the season where our Christianity is under siege. I don't know if you knew that. So many people that are not Christians are after what we have. They try to talk down what we have. They try to say, oh, there's so many proofs that show that Jesus wasn't even alive. Jesus never existed. And many of us, when we hear these things, we're, we're kind of blown away, and we don't know a whole lot to say. And we'll have some people that'll come to us in a condescending manner and say, well, you know, I, I believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but I'm not really ready to accept him as God. Regardless of what anyone might personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing a trace of his name, how much of our history would be left? It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. And it's by his name that millions tend to curse. And it's his name that millions pray. You know, I, I, I get a kick out of uh, some of our scientists because, you know, they want to say, well, we, we don't want that uh, B.C. and A.D. stuff on our calendar anymore. So let's have B.C.E., which is before Common Era, and let's have C.E., Common Era. And let's just forget this Christianity stuff. And I like what a lot of the scientists are saying. They are rebelling against that. They're saying that if the church could provide us with a calendar that is accurate the way it is, why not give them credit for it? Why not let them have the, the what I call the chops for what they've done? The Gregorian calendar has served us well. And it's interesting how something that was created by Christianity is something that people who don't love the Lord try to take away from us. But many people have a high regard for Jesus. They assert he was a great man, a great moral teacher, a great example, or a great martyr. But really, what did Jesus think about himself? Jesus believed it was critically important what other people thought of him. I don't know how many of you have come across an author by the name of C.S. Lewis, but I so recommend anything that he writes. Some of our children love the Chronicles of Narnia, the movie series, and that was written by C.S. Lewis. A lot of people forget that. There was a movie that came out called Surprised by Joy, and that was something that C.S. Lewis wrote. There's a lot of things that C.S. Lewis has touched 
and written that has touched our secular lives. And so I love it when you read what C.S. Lewis says. Some people have asked C.S. Lewis, well, when did you become a Christian? And many of us think that, you know, at one time he came to a church service like this. And some pastor said something that seemed to make sense to him. And C.S. Lewis stood up, came forward, and accepted Jesus. That is not what happened at all. Jesus, uh, excuse me, C.S. Lewis was riding a double-decker bus. And he was a vowed atheist. And he knew everything about Christianity. And as he was riding this bus, and I don't know how many of you have been on a double-decker bus, but it tends to sway down the road because it's a little top-heavy. And C.S. Lewis is doing this, going down the road. And he's thinking about the next thing he wants to say against Christianity. And the more he thought about it, the more he realized, I don't have a legal leg to stand on. Christianity is real. Christianity is, the, is something that I need to believe in. Christianity is something I need to give my life to. And so C.S. Lewis says, on this one date, I stepped aboard a double-decker bus. And when I stepped off, I was a devout Christian. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up and call him a fool. You can spit at him, and you can treat him like a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus regarded himself as God in human form. Let me say that again. Jesus regarded himself as God in human form. Jesus' claim must either be true or it must be false. If Jesus' claim to be God is true, then we must respond appropriately. But if Jesus' claim to being God is false, then he either knew his claim was false, thus making him a horrible liar, or he did not know his claim was false, thus making him a lunatic. If Jesus knew that he was not God, then he was making a deliberate misrepresentation. Mess, mess Sometimes I have to look at the word again. And he was a liar, but he was more than a liar. He would also be a hypocrite. And worse, he was also a fool, because eventually he would die for the very lie that he was promoting. But how could Jesus, a liar, a hypocrite, 
and a fool, leave us with the most powerful and profound teaching in history. How could a liar teach life-changing truths and lead such an exemplary moral life? There's a, a little saying I like from Pirates of the Caribbean. The notion strains credulity. I like that phrase. It simply means nobody can believe that. In his book, and I like to read, probably figured that out. In his book, Cold Case Christianity, J. Warner Wallace, a cold case homicide detective, lists three types of motives that lie in the heart of any kind of misbehavior. They are financial greed, relationship desire, or pursuit of power. So the question he had in his book is, did Jesus perhaps lie about his identity because of one of these three motives? Was Jesus motivated by financial greed? If you read the Gospels, Jesus taught his disciples to give up their possessions to the needy and not to store up treasures in this life, but to store up treasures in heaven. That's found in Luke, the 12th chapter. Jesus never profited from his preaching and his healing. Moreover, many of you might remember, Jesus' only possession at the end of his life was his robe. I don't think anybody can look at Jesus and say he was motivated by financial greed. Was Jesus motivated by relationship desires? Jesus had exemplary relationships with all people, including the many women who followed him. There is simply no evidence that he was motivated by any kind of relationship desire. Or was Jesus motivated by the pursuit of power? Jesus' ministry model was that of servanthood. He taught that the greatest person is the one who serves. There's a commentator by the name of Joel Green that explains the significance of Jesus' teaching on this matter. He does not deny then that some will lead. And so on, after all, he has been portrayed in the book of Luke as Lord and King. He insists rather that his status as Lord and King, as greatest, is expressed in the shape of his service, which is so integral to his character that it will determine the manner of his comportment with the faithful, even to the bitter end. So also must be the defining, defining qualities of his apostles, who then are to turn from their obsession with their own status to a comparable attentiveness to the needs of others. In other words, when Jesus talked about Christian leadership, Christian leadership looks like serving chow on a line to people who are needy. Christian leadership looks like packing up all your things and going to a war zone or going to a hurricane zone or someplace like that and helping people out. Servant leadership is defined by what you do for others, not what you do for yourself. I have to be very careful here. I have problems 
when I see pastors flying around in jet airplanes. Problem with that. Uh, I have a problem when I see pastors driving around in limousines. I have a problem with all of that. Now, maybe you can straighten me out, but somewhere in the back of my head, I'm thinking, you know, there might be a better way to portray your Christianity than driving around in a Porsche. Okay? Just saying. But it is clear that Jesus did not lie about his identity. Jesus had servanthood ministry. Like I said earlier, he died with a robe. That was it. And they took his robe. Second, is Jesus a lunatic? Jesus, perhaps Jesus was simply mistaken about his identity. He may have thought that he was God, but in reality he wasn't. After all, one can be sincere and sincerely wrong at the same time. I want to take you back to what it was like to live as a Jew in the first century. You lived in what some people describe as a fiercely monotheistic culture. In other words, you believed that Yahweh was your God. And there was no room for anything else. And so when Jesus told others that their eternal destiny depended on believing in him, it would not have been very well received. Christian philosopher Peter Kreef presents this option and then shows why we must reject it. A measure of your insanity is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you really are. If I think I'm the greatest pastor in America, I'm only an arrogant fool. If I think I'm Napoleon, I'm probably over the edge. But if I think I'm a butterfly then I am fully embarked away from the sunny shores of sanity. But if I think I'm God, I am even more insane because the gap between something finite, like my life, and the infinite God is greater than the gap between any two finite things, even a man and a butterfly. So why not view Jesus as a liar or a lunatic because almost no one who has read the Gospels can honestly and can seriously consider that option the savviness the canniness the human wisdom the attractiveness of Jesus emerges from the Gospels with unavoidable force to any but the most hardened and prejudiced reader Jesus has in abundance precisely three qualities that liars and lunatics almost always lack his practical wisdom his ability to read human hearts his deep and winning love his passionate compassion his ability to attract people and make them feel at home and forgiven his authority not as the scribes have and above all his ability to astonish his unpredictability his creativity liars and lunatics are all such dull and predictable creatures. No one knows both the Gospels and human beings can seriously entertain the possibility that Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or a bad man. And so the final thing that we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus 
Lord, if Jesus is not a liar or a lunatic, then he must be Lord. When people were trying to figure out Jesus' identity, Jesus asked his disciples, But who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And after his resurrection, when, an, uh, when a disciple named Thomas saw the resurrected Jesus, he said, My Lord and my God. Many are set in today's world to disprove that Jesus is God in human form. But after an honest study of the question, they've come to see that Jesus' claim to be God is in fact true. So what is your response to Jesus' identity? Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. We all must make that decision and take that choice. The Apostle John wrote in John 20, verses 30 through 31, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I want to point out something to you. Listen carefully. If you're a child, if you're a grown-up, if you're, if you're on the edge, let me tell you something bluntly. and Pay heed to this. When anybody tells you that Jesus is not Lord, when, when he tells you that God is not God, when they tell you that there's absolutely no way that Christianity is real, you don't have to say a word. Point to a church. Point to that church. Point to that church. Every city in the United States got a church in it. You can tell by the steeples. When I was a sailor and we were coming into port, we used church steeples to figure out exactly where we were in the harbor. Go to a foreign country, pull into their harbor, churches. Get off the boat, get on a bus, take a drive, right into the countryside. What do you find? Churches. It doesn't matter where you go. Even in some Muslim countries like Iran, which hate Christianity with a passion, and Judaism as well, Christians are there. I mean to tell you, there is no energy on this planet that is capable of driving Christianity unless God himself was driving it. There is no way that people are putting their lives on the line each and every day in foreign countries to just live the Christian life that we so much take for granted. They do it because they feel the power of God. They do it because they can do no other. They do it because they know it's right. And as we close today, I want you to know that Jesus has as much authority in death as he does in life. Later on in the passage, Jesus is talking to Mary after he talked to Martha, and he's talking to friends of Lazarus, and they're all you know, kind of celebrating Lazarus' life, 
and, and tears are being shed. And Jesus is caught up in the emotion. And he says, tell me where you've laid him. Tell me where you've laid him. And so they walk across Bethany, the town that Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. Walked across Bethany, came to the graveyard. By the way, if you find yourself in Israel, you can go visit Lazarus' tomb. They preserved it. I don't know if you knew that. They preserved it. And so they go to Lazarus' tomb. And Jesus, with a loud voice, says, Lazarus, come forth. And when he does, the man who was dead stumbled out of the tomb, wrapped up in bandages, because that's how they embalmed you back in the day. And Jesus said, take him and loose him and let him go. What I love about the Gospels and what I love about Jesus, he tells you, I am the resurrection and the life. None may come to the Father but through me. And then 30 minutes later, he raised somebody from the dead. That's why, even to this day, there are Christians in Israel. Even to this day, there's Christians that believe. Even to this day, each and every one of you who know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you have a testimony that cannot be shaken. The only way it can be shaken is if you let yourself be shaken. Let us go to our Lord in prayer. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us such a sure testimony. We thank you, Lord, that you care about us, that you're not ambiguous about who you are. We know you are Jesus. We know you are God. We know you died for our sins. And we're going to celebrate that on the 31st of this month, our Easter holiday. Lord, if there's anybody out there that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, now is the time to come forth. Now is the time to confess. Now is the time to let us show you the best news you will ever read in your life. Now let us stand as we sing our last song.